Tuesday is election day, you may have heard. And as is the tradition in many congregations, the Sunday before election day is a time to reflect on how our values can inform our engagement with the democratic process. As Unitarian Universalists, one of our slogans is side with love. So what might it mean then to vote on the side of love? One among many possible responses to that question is to turn our UU principles into a set of questions that we can either literally ask candidates or that we can use as kind of a checklist to think through which candidates are in line with our values. So if you, you know, if you need, you may have them in your head or if you want to follow along, they're on the back of your order of service, but it's to turn those seven principles into You know, asking a candidate, do your policy proposals reflect the inherent worth and dignity of every person? If elected, how will your everyday decisions demonstrate justice, equity, and compassion in human relations? How will you encourage acceptance and growth across party lines? What insights have you learned from your own search for truth and meaning that will guide you as a political leader? What ideas do you have to improve our democratic process? Within our international community, how will you work toward a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all? Acknowledging our interdependence, how will your decisions impact our planet and future generations? And what specific actions will you take to accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions and build a diverse, multicultural society? There's no one right answer to these questions for all times and places, and there is room within the big tent of Unitarian Universalism for people supporting candidates along various different points of the political spectrum that are in line with these values, but there are also ways of being out of alignment with these values. So in that light, if I had to summarize how we as a UU congregation can best navigate the separation of church and state during election seasons, it would be to say we can very much be political but not partisan. We can advocate for and against particular political issues and positions according to our values, but we can't endorse specific candidates. That doesn't preclude us, though, from speaking prophetically according to our conscience to hold politicians accountable for specific actions that they have or haven't taken. So on this Sunday before Election Day, I'd like to invite us to reflect on the political landscape through the lens of our UU Fifth Principle, the right of conscience and the practice of democracy, both in our congregations and in society at large. From a Fifth Principle perspective, we lose our way as UUs if we devolve into a rigid and reflexive partisanship. But we act in alignment with some of our highest values when we act collectively and individually to defend the democratic process itself. So beyond the horse race of whether any given candidate wins, I'll leave that to the data wizards at 538, I am interested in better equipping us to identify when the democratic norms in our society are being undermined, the ways we can protect democracy both for ourselves and for future generations. If there were more time, we could also consider the rising tide of authoritarianism, not only in our own country, but also globally. But arguably, the most important first step, to be frank, is to get our own house in order. 
The democracy we have the most direct influence over is the one in which we can vote or pretty easily encourage other people to vote. And although there are examples of previous U.S. government officials undermining democratic norms, the reason that I scheduled this particular topic for this particular Sunday is that it is important to be honest, clear, and direct about the unprecedented level at which our current president has regularly, openly, and unapologetically showed disdain for basic constitutional norms. There is certainly not time this morning for an exhaustive list, but here is a distillation from a political scientist. Over the course of his campaign, candidate Trump broke just about every rule of democratic politics. He promised to jail political opponents. He refused to say that he would accept the outcome of the election. He bullied the press. He invited a foreign power um, to sabotage his main competitor. He incited hatred, hatred against ethnic and religious minorities and promised to take unconstitutional action against them. As president-elect, he made baseless claims about widespread voter fraud. He denigrated the neutrality of independent state institutions from courts to intelligence agencies. He inquired about the status of planning permits for his own personal building projects on official calls with official heads of state foreign heads of state. He refused to create a blind trust for his private businesses, and he repeatedly complimented the dictatorial leader of a rival power. As president, he has refused to resolve his substantial conflicts of interest. He has used the machinery of government to spread lies. He has tried to bar permanent residents from re-entering this country. He has railed against, quote, so-called judges. He has dubbed journalists the, quote, enemies of the people. He has threatened the owners of critical media outlets with higher taxes. He has undermined attempts to investigate his links with Russia by colluding with loyalist legislators. He has uh, fired the directors of the FBI and publicly um, threatened them with secret recordings. Note that this list, none of it, is about the success or the failure of partisan political positions. It is about the person occupying the presidency of the United States having a reckless disregard for democratic traditions and for constitutional norms. To name yet another example from just this past week, when our president wanted to manipulate the media and the public in the days before the midterm elections, he didn't just bring up what he thought was important and what the opponents were doing wrong. He threatened to void birthright citizenship law by executive order, which would violate the 14th Amendment. As best I can tell, his motivation is not whether something is constitutional, but whether his ends justify the means. And the painful truth is that such cynical ploys have proved to be all too effective most of the time. One of the guides that I have found most helpful in thinking through what is merely a partisan difference and what is a threat to our constitution, to our democratic norms is Yasha Monk. Monk was born in 1982 in Germany to, um, uh, to parents who immigrated to Germany from Poland. His mother is also Jewish. Uh, He earned a B.A. in history from Cambridge and a Ph.D. in government from Harvard. He became a U.S. citizen just this past year and continues to be a lecturer at Harvard. So he has a pretty fascinating perspective on uh, world history for such a time as this. I first learned about him on his regular podcast for Slate, The Good Fight, and the sermon is inspired by his most recent book uh, with Harvard University Press titled The People vs. Democracy. 
So what does that title mean? How can the people be against democracy, right? Isn't democracy literally people power, right? The Greek word demos and kratia, meaning power. Well, part of what he means is that it actually is the case that, you know, what happens if people use their power to cede power over to a dictator? You know, what, what do we do with that? That's what he means by the people versus democracy. For us Unitarian Universalists, one can make the argument that our fifth principle commitment to democracy means that there should be guardrails against any such choice. From this perspective, any act that would permanently undermine the democratic check on power would itself be anti-democratic and out of order. That being said, the truth is that democracy, definitionally, is nothing more than a set of binding electoral institutions that effectively translate popular views into public policy. One might rightly add, but don't we, the people of the United States, have additional values beyond our commitment to democracy? Values that protect the rule of law and guarantee individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of association for all citizens. Not just for you, not just for people you agree with, but for all citizens. Thank you for helping prevent fire. <laughs> so, uh, those values, though, are not democratic values. They are liberal values. Not liberal like the modern Democratic Party, but classical 18th century Enlightenment liberalism on which our nation was founded. As we discussed last week, that classical liberalism is from the Latin root liber that means freedom, assuming a basic level of freedom for all individuals irrespective of who the people vote for in any given election. Said more directly, sometimes people vote democratically for illiberalism, values that violate individual rights and liberties. The good news is that we, the people of the United States, have come together to form a more perfect union that is not merely a democracy. We are a liberal democracy. Our founders created a political system that is both liberal and democratic, one that both protects individual rights and translates the popular views into public policy, with the exception of any time those public views want to violate individual rights. In that sense, George W. Bush is as much a liberal as Barack Obama, and Ronald Reagan is as much a liberal as Bill Clinton. But when any president, irrespective of political party, violates basic liberal values, our democracy is threatened. Joshua Monk calls the two common alternatives to liberal democracy, democracy without rights and rights without democracy. Democracy without rights is what our founders called the tyranny of the majority. So it's democracy without rights. You have democracy, but you have the majority voting for things that violate individual rights. And they feared this. Our founders thought that core individual freedoms like speech, religion, press, association, uh, that should be protected irrespective of what any temporary majority of voters wanted in, in the heat of any given electoral moment. Rights without democracy is when our human rights and our civil rights are maintained, at least for now, but other factors like big money and voter suppression dominate the political process to the extent that the will of the people is regularly undermined. We currently actually have both problems in the U.S. today, uh, but I'll address the issues of rights without democracy more fully in late January in a sermon that I call We the Corporations. 
Uh, for now, I want to keep our focus on a possible future of democracy without rights that could in itself, if we continue using our democracy to vote against protecting our rights, that could devolve into a, democracy, a, a dictatorship in which you have neither democracy nor rights. And one common path to democracy without rights and to manipulating the people and to empowering politicians, using people power to empower people who would undermine individual rights and democratic norms, is populism. But I'll hasten to add that, of course, not all populism is bad. Indeed, populism, in, in, emphasizing the importance of the people over an elite few, can be quite healthy for the body politic. So it might be more accurate to say that the most common path to democracy without rights is a particular form of populism called demagoguery. And notice that a lot of these words are coming from ancient Greek, and that's because we've been wrestling with them for millennia. The ancient Greeks knew about them as well as our founders and political you know, people that pay attention to politics today. Both demagoguery and democracy both begin with that Greek word demos, meaning people, and demagoguery instead, though, adds that um, Greek root agagos, which means leader. Uh, demagoguery has the sense not of democratic people power, but of a leader who turns we, the people, into a mob. We have seen this approach with rallies by Donald Trump here in the U.S., with Nigel Farage in the United Kingdom, with the vote to Brexit, to exit the uh, European Union, with Marie Le Pen in France, with Franck Petri in Germany, with Brazil currently has similar problems for those of you paying attention to Brazil's politics, others around the world. And despite important differences from all those politicians that I just mentioned, there is a pattern to their particular form of populist rhetoric, of demagoguery, that they tend to say things like, the solution to all the, our problems are actually really straightforward. Just vote for me. The political establishment, they're, just, they, they're ignoring the really simple solutions. And if you allow me, I'll be your voice, and the, you know, the reasons for your discontent will vanish, and we'll make America or Great Britain or Germany or France or Brazil great again. Sort of play on nostalgia. The truth, though, is that politics and life are messier and more complex than demagogues um, will tell you, really, than populists generally. So to maintain power, demagogues tend to, especially once they're in power, they'll blame racial and ethnic and religious minorities. They're your problems. We just need to stampede over their rights, and we can, again, make America or whatever great again. Together, uh, and they also resist political institutions that would impede them from trampling these rights. Together, that results in a shift toward democracy without rights, whipping up the passions of an electoral majority to take away the rights of the few. But it is often too late when the majority realize that their, their individual rights and liberties tend to soon be targeted as well. You may know the famous saying, first they came for the Jews, and then they came, and then they came, and when they came for me, there was no one left to protect me, right? History shows us time and again that when rights and liberties and civilities are disrespected, previously unquestioned norms quickly deteriorate. President Trump has repeatedly crossed what used to be called red lines. But as soon as we look back at them now through the red view mirror, they start to appear awfully yellow or green. Nevertheless, I do not think that the takeaway is despair. If the year 2016, the election of Donald Trump, and the passage of Brexit has taught us anything, it is that the future is uncertain and the experts don't always make accurate predictions. There remain many reasons to hope, 
to mobilize, to organize, to make our society less susceptible to demagoguery. Among the many tasks at hand is to decrease wealth inequality. One of the biggest triggers that makes ripe ground for demagoguery is a wealth gap. We also need to increase funding at all levels for high-quality universal education for all levels, I would say all the way through community college or vocational training, so that we equip people to both have good jobs as well as to engage critically and thoughtfully with the political process. And we need to reform our internet and social media platforms to be more responsible against misinformation and propaganda. I'll be talking about that more the Sunday after Thanksgiving as we think some about 21st century technology. At its core, though, I need to stress that the issue is not partisanship, but patriotism, defending the norms, rights, and freedoms that are at the heart of our democracy. Speaking for myself, I rarely agreed with the political um, policies of the late Senator John McCain, but we heard so many moving testimonies at his funeral about the ways in which he did, at some really crucial points, choose country over party. That's what we're talking about. As I move toward my conclusion, I'll give you one more example, this time from our own Unitarian Universalist history, of defending our democracy as much or more as patriots instead of as partisans. History reminds me as well that as challenging as our current political climate is, it is not actually, at least not yet, anything like as terrible as the mid-19th century and the U.S. Civil War. And I'm reminded further that in 1861, at the beginning of the U.S. Civil War, our Unitarian forebear, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., published an unofficial fifth verse to our national anthem that started appearing in songbooks of the era. That, particularly, uh, that fifth verse particularly wrestled with threats to our liberal democracy, as in the Civil War, that came not from without, but from within. Some of the lyrics that have made this verse newly poignant are that if a foe from within strikes a blow at her glory, down down with the traitor that dares to defile the flag of her stars and the page of her story. Or toward the end of the verse, Holmes envisioning the end of slavery and connecting that with that original promise that all people are created equal. He writes, by the millions unchained who our birthright have gained, we will keep her bright blazon forever unstained. And although it is customary to stand or kneel for verse 1 of the Star-Spangled Banner, For this fifth verse, I will invite you to stay seated, and as you listen, open your hearts, open your mind. How are you being called in this moment and in the days to come to both practice and to protect our UU fifth principle of democracy? When our land is illumined with liberty's smile, If a foe from within strike a blow at her glory, down, down with the traitor that dares to defile the flag of our stars and the page of her story. By the millions unchained Who our birthright have gained We will keep her bright blade 
Thank you. We do live in challenging times, but even as demagogues seek to dominate and manipulate us with the politics of division, of hatred and cruelty, our invitation is to continue to side with love, to live ever more fully into that original promise of our nation, to build a world in which all people are equal, with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not just for some, but for all. In the words of the African-American activist and poet Langston Hughes about his own experience of the dissonance between being a citizen of the U.S. but not being fully part of that expanding concentric circle of inclusiveness, he wrote, Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on people's lives, we must take back our land again. He says, America was never America to me. And yet I swear this America will be.